A couple of weeks ago, John preached from the book of Ruth, I believe, and I understand that he um, apologized for his poetic prowess in alliterating the points of his sermon and making them all begin with the same letter. And as you can see here on page nine of your bulletin, sometimes that just happens. Me too. I also apologize for that. It's a preacher trick. We don't mean to pull tricks on you, but sometimes it just makes sense. In Esther 4, where we are this morning, you might remember that we've, we've seen already that Haman, that enemy of the Jews, has plotted. He's hatched a plot to gain revenge on Mordecai for a show of disrespect. And his plot is to destroy the Jews, to destroy all the people of Mordecai destroy all the people of God, in fact. And he had gained the king's approval for his plan. And the two politicians, Haman and King Xerxes, were told, sat down to drink together while the entire city was thrown into confusion by this evil edict as it went out. And now Mordecai has a problem. He has a big problem. And in the midst of his problem, we have a, a, a good opportunity to see a picture of man's responsibility in the light of God's sovereign plan. So, will you stand as I read Esther chapter 4? When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly, He went only as far as the entrance of the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe him so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the edict issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death, unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But as for me, thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai sent back this answer. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more Than all the other Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this? Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai 
Go, gather all the Jews who are in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him to do. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Father, we pray that as we gather together around your word here, that you would be at work in us by your spirit. We confess, Lord, that apart from that, this is to us only an ancient story. But we pray that you would increase our faith, allow us to have eyes to see your gospel, have ears to hear it and hearts to believe it, and lives to embrace it. Father, would you make us new, change us, and cause us to grow in grace even this, this morning together, by the power of your word, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. As John alluded to earlier this morning, 499 years ago, tomorrow, supposedly tomorrow, the particular day, 499 years ago, a social media post changed the world. Martin Luther, that that obscure monk, obscure at that time, not obscure anymore, posted his 95 theses, his 95 objections, as John described them, his 95 ideas. He posted them, a piece of paper, imagine, a handwritten piece of paper. Who does that anymore? And he nailed them to the door of the church, the local church there in Germany. That was the social media platform that he had. He didn't have the technology that we do, or else it would have Imagine, spread around the world so much faster, instantaneously. But he posted his social media declaration, and it began one of the truly great conversations in all of the history of the world. A great conversation about things that truly matter. A conversation that came to be known as what we call the Protestant Reformation. And so today is the day that many Protestant churches remember and even celebrate Reformation Day, the Sunday that's closest to that particular day of October 31st. Today is Reformation Day. And you might have seen the the handouts on the bulletin table out in the lobby. Grab one and take it with you and learn a little bit that perhaps you don't know or maybe you do know and can refresh your memory on what Reformation Day reminds us of because there were five big ideas that flowed through the church from Luther's conversation that he began. Five big ideas, and they are these. Scripture alone shows us how we can know God. Christ alone provides the way to God. Grace alone frees us to follow God. Faith alone stands approved by God. And glory for all of His work belongs alone to God. In other words, God alone sovereignly brings all things to pass, even if people are responsible for their own actions. It's a truth that led Paul in Romans 5 that you heard earlier to boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ because, he elaborated, we're justified in God's sight by grace, through faith, in the righteousness of 
Christ, who at just the right time, Paul said, died, perished for us. Esther 4 provides for us really, I think, a very appropriate Reformation Day picture. Relief and deliverance will rise for God's people. The question is, will God's people do what God has placed before them to do? Last week we saw how Mordecai had discovered this plot against King Xerxes. He'd uncovered it at the the king's gate, the gate to the palace, the place of civic duty there in Susa. Mordecai had uncovered this plot and he reported it through Esther to the king and spared the king's life. And we saw also how Haman, another civic official, was promoted by the king in contrast to Mordecai. And then begrudging Mordecai's show of disrespect, Mordecai refusing to obey the king's declaration and command that all should bow down to Haman. Haman, begrudging Mordecai for this, hatched a plot to destroy all the Jews. And the the question resonated out, will God still be faithful to His people? Will God still carry out His promise? And the answer was, of course, yes. God is always faithful to His promise. And the story of Esther now unfolds into chapter 4 to show us just how God will be faithful. God will put the right person in the right place at the right moment to do the right job to bring about His promise. Now, remarkably, and poetically even, here in this story, the disobedience of one person, Mordecai, has placed all of the Israelites under the sentence of death. And the obedience of one person, Esther, would free them from that sentence. Relief and deliverance will rise for God's people. Because of His sovereign power, there's no doubt about that. But His people are responsible to do what He's placed before them to do. What? Recognize a call to repentance. Luther's first thesis in his 95 uh, statements on the social media platform of his day, his first thesis said this, When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said repent, He willed the entire life of a believer to be a life of repentance. That statement set the tone for Luther's whole idea in his 95 Theses. In other words, true repentance is not a list of outward actions, but rather it's an inward struggle with sin. And yet, at the same time, Luther explained, true repentance is not just inward either. It also shows itself by one's outward actions. And so, when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. That is, maybe you know, a common expression of grief and repentance, even in biblical times, a, a, a public demonstration, an outward action to show an inward reality. And that's what Mordecai was doing because Mordecai evidently had recognized a call to repentance. Karen Jobes is a, a Bible scholar and in particular an expert on the book of Esther. She wrote an excellent commentary that I've been reading along with uh, this sermon series. And she explains how oftentimes Bible writers 
would use language reflective of other biblical books that they were aware of in order to stress and emphasize a certain point. And so the description of Mordecai and the Jews here, when, when Karen Jobes, this scholar, reads that the Mordecai and the Jews were in sackcloth and ashes, fasting and weeping and lamenting, that along with Mordecai's famous question that follows, who knows but that you've come to royal position for such a time as this, when Karen Jobes reads that, she hears the prophet Joel Joel was a, a, a minor prophet, a, a, a small book. That means he's not unimportant, but just he didn't have as much to write as the major ones. Joel was a prophet speaking God's words to Judah before the time of the exile, before Esther and Joel called them to put on sackcloth and lament. He called them to return to the Lord with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. And then he said, Who knows but that the Lord, who is gracious and merciful, might relent and return to you. When Karen Jobes reads that, she says, Mordecai is recognizing a call to repentance. Just as Joel had been doing in his own time, Mordecai now has recognized a call to repentance in his time. And it's a call that every person is responsible to recognize in their own time. You know, when we look around the world and see the headlines all around the world on our social media platforms, and we we see how the world offers us so much of disaster and destruction, you know, wars and refugee displacements and poverty and domestic violence and disease and despair, it's way too easy for us in our hearts and our minds and maybe even at times with our words to wonder whose sin is to blame for all this mess. But Mordecai casts no blame. And he points no finger. We're not even told, actually, what Mordecai was specifically repenting of. The, the, the writer is careful to try to not explicitly include God, for poetic reasons, in his writing. We're not told exactly what Mordecai was repenting of. We have to assume that he was sensitive to Jewish matters. I mean, he was Persian by name, but he was Jewish by heritage. Mordecai surely knew his family's heritage in the promised land. And so he recognized his own individual role in the current dilemma. He recognized that he, having refused to bow to Haman, the the civil authority, as the king had commanded him to do, Mordecai, by his own disobedience in that had brought this trouble, even individually, upon all of Israel, now threatened because of it. But perhaps he also even recognized a corporate responsibility, a corporate role in that current mess. Because after all, Xerxes, the king's predecessor, King Cyrus, had freed the Jews. He had released them to return to their homeland. He told them, go back to Jerusalem, go back to your land and rebuild your cities. He had done that decades ago, but even now at the time of Esther, that project was languished and not making progress. Maybe Mordecai recognized that corporate role in the current circumstance as well. Either way, he recognized a call to repentance and he responded with repentance. He turned away from his own sin. 
And that's the responsibility of every person. Unbelievers and believers alike. After all, what Luther had said, and rightly so, biblically so, was that the entire life of every believer is to be a life of repentance. Not of blame shifting, but of repentance. You know, Jesus' disciples at one point had learned of a horrible event that had happened. Some Galilean people had been executed by the Roman authorities unjustly and brutally, brutally so. And they were evidently speculating about the reasons for this horrible event. And Jesus apparently could see the question on their faces and he answered it before they asked. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the others? No. But I tell you, unless you repent, then you will perish. It's one of the first responsibilities of every person because it is a saving grace. Our catechism tells us very helpfully, a saving grace by which a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and a true sense of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it. Repentance is turning. It's turning. But, you know, when you turn away from one thing, you inevitably turn to another thing. And this is often where we get ourselves into trouble because usually when we turn away from our own sin or turn away from some temptation, we often turn to self-resolve. We turn to self-reliance. We turn to self-dependence because, you know, what do we say in our hearts? We say, I will not do that anymore. And we make a resolution. Resolutions aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves, but when we simply turn from our sin to ourselves, we've turned to an empty place. It's, It's like turning from an addiction to hard liquor to an addiction to cigarettes. One of them will destroy your liver and the other will destroy your lungs. The result eventually is the same. You're responsible to turn from, but what do you turn to? You turn to one who's in a position to do something for you. You turn to someone who can request a plea for mercy. The catechism is simple. You turn from sin to God. Esther was distressed for Mordecai. and In this story here, she was distressed for him when she heard about his condition. And she sent him clothing. She sent a servant out with with clothes to replace his sackcloth and ashes. And it was evidently, in Mordecai's eyes, just a Band-Aid. A Band-Aid that he did not want. And he refused it. And so then Esther sent Hathach, her servant, to go out and to learn what was troubling Mordecai and why. And the word came back, an explanation from Mordecai, that Haman, with the king's permission, is going to destroy all of our people. And that implicitly includes you and me, Esther. And so he sent also a command to the queen. And he said this, I want you to go into the king's presence and to beg for mercy, to plead with him for our people. Mordecai did the only thing that a truly repentant person could do. He went to the right person in the right place at the right 
moment and requested of them a plea for mercy because only a certain individual, only a person with privilege could enter into the king's presence uninvited. Only a a person upon whom the king can look and be pleased can even have a chance. Because Esther's reply gives you the rest of the story, doesn't it? What did she say to him? In so many words, she said, Mordecai, you, you realize what you're asking of me. You're asking of me to risk everything, even to put my life on the line, because you know the law, Mordecai. No one can do what you're asking me to do. Because in ancient Persian culture, apparently only the king's inner circle of administrators and advisors could actually go into his inner court unannounced, uninvited. The proper protocol for anyone else was to seek an audience with the king through a messenger who would take that to one of those inner circle people and that person would take it to the king and the king would set a time if he desired to see that person. Otherwise, anyone who came into the king's inner court unannounced and uninvited faced a sentence of death, even the queen herself, because she was not part of that inner circle. Unless the golden scepter was held out to that person in mercy by the king. And for Esther, though, it had been 30 days since the king had called her. The king wasn't ever alone at night. He had someone with him at night, and Esther hadn't been that person for 30 days. Apparently, after five years of marriage, maybe Esther's appeal in the king's eyes perhaps had waned, and she was concerned. I'm not sure that he wants me in his presence right now. If Esther was going to plead for mercy, there were two things that she was going to have to do, and both of them were enormously risky. Not just to mention going uninvited into the king's presence. She was going to have to go and identify with her people, and she was going to have to go and intercede for her people. Now, Esther had been queen at this point, like I said, for five years. And King Xerxes still did not know that she was an Israelite. For five years, he still did not know. She'd not revealed that to him. She'd been ordered by Mordecai not to, but she still had not identified with her people in the king's presence. He didn't know that she belonged to this tribe of people. In boldness to intercede before the king, I mean, to ask a favor in the presence of the king on the part of the queen, Esther was well aware five, six, seven years ago, the previous queen had been deposed because she'd been too bold. And she didn't even enter into the king's inner chambers without permission. She was still deposed, Queen Vashti was. And so Mordecai puts it all into perspective for her because Esther's having a hard time seeing it. And he says to her, don't think that being in the king's palace, you will escape. Because if you remain silent, God will still deliver his people. But you and your family, you'll perish. God is sovereign, Esther, and you are responsible. And she saw the light. Imagine, amazing, Mordecai's bold advice to her, and she saw the light. Esther is a signpost for us because God has identified with you and with me. God has identified with His people in the incarnation. Hebrews tells us that since we have flesh and blood, He too shared our humanity 
so that by his death he might destroy the one who holds the power of death. God has identified himself with us. And God has interceded for you and for me by the work of the Spirit. Paul says in Romans, God who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. God has identified with His people. God has interceded for His people. And a repentant person does the only thing that a repentant person can do. He or she requests a plea for mercy. And since we have a high priest who's passed through the heavens, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Because the gospel gives you this grounding. The gospel in Jesus gives you a firm foundation so that with that plea for mercy, you can then rely on the goodness of providence. Christian providence is is such a huge theme in the book of Esther, and Christian providence is good because God who directs it is good. Always. Providence is not some impersonal force that's just kind of out there dictating the ways and the fate of your life, but rather the hand of God is at work in His providence. And it's the force of Mordecai's argument to Esther because he asked her the famous question that is so well known. Esther, who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this? Esther had come to her position. Esther had come to her opportunity. Esther had come to her beauty, which was her ticket into the king's court in the first place. The passive tense, the passive sense of what's happening here is prominent, and I'm sure it's very intentional on Mordecai's part here, kind of like a a father to a daughter, an older cousin to a younger cousin. He says to her, you are what you are by the providence of God. And you must rely on His goodness in it, even if it costs you great risk. It's like a superhero's wisdom. With great power comes great responsibility. If you don't know those words, then they simply parrot the more famous and wiser words of a wiser man to whom much is given, much is required. In other words, in God's good providence, you and I, have resources and abilities and privileges. You and I have have some place in the palace. And the question is, will you use those things as personal preservation or will you use those things as gospel blessing? You know, that's really kind of the application for us to think about in, in observing Esther in this circumstance. You, you may not feel like you can relate to Esther's passive success. I mean, she was an orphan, a Jewish girl in a very male-oriented world. Everything that she had came to her from someone else. And, and you may not feel like you can relate to that. After all, you've worked hard for your place in this world. You've earned your credentials by which people respect you. You have studied for your success and you've spent hours doing it. But even such effort does not erase your place in the palace that made it to mean something. 
Because you have circumstances, don't you? I mean, just like Esther, who was in the palace by God's providence. He's sovereign over all things, and we're responsible to be a blessing in whatever circumstances we find ourselves. You have certain circumstances in which you find yourself. For what reason has God placed you there? You also have privileges. You know, Esther had a royal position in the palace. She had the privilege of place in her position, a place to which she came because of personal resources given in the goodness of God's providence. What privileges do you have? What positions do you have that could be a gospel blessing to someone else, even if it's at some risk to your own status? and at risk to to your own place? Those are the questions we have to ask ourselves and and begin to consider and imagine what what responsibility is it to which God calls us with what he's given us in his providence? Martin Luther took a huge risk, a risk I think that he probably didn't even realize that he was taking when he nailed that paper to the door. I don't think he really realized the extent to which he was risking Everything. He had posted this list of objections, 95 of them, objections to how the power structure of the church of his day was, was functioning. And in God's good providence, Luther had a, a position. He was in a place to make something of those things. He, as as a, a, a theological doctor, he had the entry point to raise such a dispute and to create such a conversation. And to invite such debate, and he did it. But he didn't want to. He didn't intend to overturn the church. He was simply out to help the church. But his list was not well received by the powers. Not at all. In fact, those that he criticized sought to discredit him. The Pope sought to silence him, and some desired to execute him. And yet, as we're told that he famously supposedly said, here I stand and I can do no other. That's where he was. He had taken a risk in God's providence. Here he stood and there was nothing else that he could do knowing what he knew about the gospel. Mordecai and Esther here clumsily, clumsily, bore up responsibility in their actions under the sway of God's sovereign plan. Esther herself being the reluctant Savior. But she especially is not so much an example for us to imitate as she is a pointer for us to anticipate. How could Martin Luther ever take such a risk and then stand by it in the face of potential death? How could he do that? Because he was convinced that Jesus' words were not, if I perish, then I'll perish, but rather, when I perish, I will perish, and all of my people, by faith, will live. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.